0: All right. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome for being here. Welcome for being here. Thank you for being here. Welcome, and thank you for being here. There we go. We're starting this morning off on a tremendous foot. Uh, Well, uh, I just want to say that uh, this being the third Sunday of Advent, that means there is only um, one week of Advent left because next week is Christmas. For some of us, that creates a, a large amount of excitement, my daughter in particular because she already knows what one of her presents is, because we forgot to t- take the batteries out, so it barks at her um, every time we walk through the living room. Uh, that's one. Uh, two, uh, Two. Uh, we just want to say that uh, uh, I just want to echo Ashley. Last year, we had a really wonderful Christmas Eve service, uh, and this year we have some special stuff planned. And so if you uh, are bringing family, if you need a row, I would encourage you to come at 3.30, all right? Does everybody nod their head? We'll have coffee. It'll be okay. Uh, you'll make it. Uh, we'll, and we'll be sure to get you out by five, all right? So everybody can go be with their families. And the second thing is, it's in the bulletin, but there's a group of guys tonight going to Star Wars. Uh, come with me if you're a male. You're also allowed to bring your children if you want to, all right? All right, great. Seven o'clock, uh, College Square Theater. There's a little plug. What? We're laughing now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of people talking to me today. This is good. (laughs) All right. All right. So, would you guys stand today for the reading of God's word? I'll read our scripture and then we'll get into our, our sermon for today. All right. Our reading for today is out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, all right. Well, we are calling this Sunday Giving Sunday. It's officially what the title of this message is, and the reason that we are calling it Giving Sunday is because at the end of service, as Ashley said, we're going to be receiving an offering for Project Rescue. So if you've already made out a check, I hope you made that check out to our church, but uh, just a little bit of instruction at the end of service. If you do have a check or something like that, please make it out to our church with uh, Project Rescue in the memo line, and we'll send all that off in one false swoop. All right? All right. All right. This passage here in Luke in chapter 2 is one of the, one of the quintessential Christmas passages, isn't it? It's, this is the passage out of Luke that all of us think about when we think about Christmas. It's the one that your parents read to you during the Christmas season. It's the one that Linus reads to all the peanuts in Charlie Brown Christmas movie. This is the quintessential Christmas story and it's what happens when we have a quintessential story like this, when we have something that's so familiar to us, is that often the characters in the story can kind of get, honestly, a little jumbled, oh, and we can kind of assume that we know exactly what's going on, right? We we can, the familiarity breeds a kind of, um, uh, of uh, it, it leads us to not really, look deeply at the story. And so today, I want to look specifically at the character that we find in Luke, versus, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, and those characters are the shepherds. Last week, we talked a little bit about the magi, and this week, we're going to talk about the shepherds. So when we pick up the story of these shepherds in Luke chapter 2, Jesus has just been born, Jesus has just been born. Mary has wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in an animal's feeding trough. And the story picks up in verse 8 by saying, in the same region, so right in that same area around Bethlehem, in the same, relatively the same space where Jesus is born, something happens. Something happens. And what happens is that some Uh, angels appear to some shepherds. Some angels appear to some shepherds. And this is not uncommon, right? Because a shepherd was the type of person who lived with their animals. A shepherd would never leave their flock. They would stay out in the field night and day attempting to protect the animals. And for this reason, shepherds in this culture were not um, seen as particularly good people. They were, uh, they were considered in, on the strata of, so, of the social structure of the day to be uh, on a lower rung, actually. Now, this is surprising to us because so many of the biblical figures that we look at in Scripture were shepherds, right? Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus talks about himself as being a shepherd all the time. And so you would think that a shepherd was an important or esteemed position in Israel. But as it turns out, this is not the case, right? Right? Shepherds were seen as a kind of untrustworthy, kind of sleazy group of people. They were actually culturally despised. They were considered duplicitous and untrustworthy and dirty, right? You may have heard me say before that in this time, in in this culture, that women weren't allowed to testify in court because they were considered untrustworthy. This was also true of a shepherd, if a shepherd was not allowed to testify in court because they were considered to be liars or untrustworthy. This is the plight of a shepherd. In the religious culture of the day, a shepherd really couldn't participate because a shepherd was always coming into contact with dead things because they were a shepherd and they were, they were dead animals and all, all, all such things as that nature. And so a shepherd couldn't actually even participate in the regular worship of God if, if this shepherd was a Jewish man. The shepherds were ostracized. They were, in some real sense, put off into the countryside to watch the animals. They served a purpose, but they were not respected in any particular way. They were often considered to be thieves because they had a lot of free time on their hands and they roamed around. And so if you, got, if you, if you didn't want to have a shepherd in your, in your tent, because he was probably going to steal something from you, right? This is, this is what shepherds were, and yet in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, a host of angels appear, an angel, a, an angel choir appears to some of the most lowly and despised people in all of Israel, and they proclaim that in the city of Bethlehem, a king has just been born, a king has just been born. I find it difficult to even put myself in the shoes of these shepherds, right? You're just leaning up against a tree in the middle of the night, trying to stay awake so that nothing grabs your sheep, and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord shines around you, and uh, a host of angels appear and begin to sing. Whenever the light gets turned on in my bedroom when I'm sleeping, I can barely handle it, right? I lose it. I yell at one of my kids for doing that. (laughs) And this is, this is uh, let alone when God turns on the floodlights, right, of the world. And what is so amazing about this is that it is, uh, it is miraculous, right? It is startling and surprising, but it is also a kind of a normal thing to have happen in this culture, actually. Not the angel part, per se, but the proclamation of the birth of a king, or a queen, was a common thing in this culture. We don't have kings and queens in America. We do in England, and when one of them is born, we hear about it, right? It's a big deal. It's common for, particularly in this day and age, for 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 the birth or for the coming of a king or a queen to be heralded, to be pronounced, to be passed around. And in the Roman world, in the first century, you would expect this to happen. You would expect the birth of a king or the, or the enthronement of a king or the emperor or Caesar to be something that gets around, that people hear about, that people talk about, that, that uh, people uh, whisper about. And Luke particularly mentions this at the beginning of the chapter in Luke chapter 2. He talks about the ruling authority that is over all of essentially the world at this time, at least the known world to these people at this time. He he drops his name at the beginning of chapter two for this very reason, and his name was Caesar Augustus, or Augustus Caesar. Now, if you remember the first week of Western civilization when you were a junior in high school, which I'm hoping you all remember, you'll know a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Uh, If you watch the movie Gladiator, Caesar Augustus is the old guy in the first third of the movie that Russell Crowe likes a lot. Before before Walking Phoenix gives him too much of a hug, uh, yeah, that happens. Uh, Augustus was one of the greatest, most po- really he was the greatest and most powerful Caesar that Rome ever had. He was uh, almost immediately following uh, Julius Caesar, and he uh, really the under him the borders of Rome were larger than they had ever been, and the power of Rome was more unquestioned than it had ever been. Uh, His name, officially, before he became Caesar, was not Augustus, it was Octavius, and he was Julius Caesar's adopted son. He fought a battle against Mark Anthony and Cleopatra uh, after after Julius Caesar died to kind of unify the the Roman nation, Uh, but but when he became emperor, he took on this name Augustus, and what that, that name meant was majestic or worthy of honor right? This is what the name Augustus meant. And the second thing he did, and this is quite interesting, to bolster his own position and authority, was that he didn't say that he was a god. He said that Julius Caesar was a god, which, makes, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. But what that meant was then that he was the son of God, right? And quickly, when he ascended to the throne... A, a, this message went out over all the Roman world that was called a euangelion, which is, a, which is the Greek word for good news, went all throughout the Roman world, and it said this, we have an emperor. The Son of God has become king of the world. This is what, this is what went all around the world. This was the pronouncement that occurred when Augustus became King. You can see what the author of the Gospel of Luke is doing here, can't you? Luke is uh, Luke is intentionally attempting to show us something about this King Jesus. Just like last week, how Jesus was played off of Herod, this week Jesus is being shown or played off of Augustus in some real and interesting ways. We saw last week that Jesus was a kind of threat to Herod's power, and because Jesus was this threat to Herod's power, Herod wanted to go after him, right? He wanted to get him. But this week, Luke is showing us in vivid detail that Jesus, not Augustus Caesar, is the true king of the world. And it is his coming and his reign that is being announced to these shepherds. But we have to ask the question, right? Of all the people in the world, of all the people in Israel, of all the people in Bethlehem that you might be able to announce the coming of Jesus to, why shepherds? Why why do these lowly, dirty, uneducated people, why do they get the announcement and why are they tasked with the responsibility of going out into the city and telling everyone that they see about this king who had come? You might ask yourself, what a waste right? What a waste of a perfectly good angelic choir (laughs) on the couple guys who are dirty and smell, right? It seems like a waste. And all this spectacle and wonder and all of this this grand language and all of this importance is just kind of thrown on these gentlemen who are out in a field in the middle of the night because they don't have a good job, right? This is what This is what is happening in this passage. And so what do the shepherds do? What do the shepherds do? They go. They they listen to the angel, surprise, surprise. They listen to the angelic hosts, and they go find Jesus. And it says that they find Jesus and Mary there, and they see Jesus in the manger. And then the text quickly shifts, doesn't it? It quickly shifts from them seeing Jesus uh, seeing Jesus in the manger to a kind of proclamation that these shepherds carry out. In verses 17 and 18, it says this, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. These shepherds, some of the least liked and least trusted people in the culture, were the ones who were responsible for spreading the word about Jesus? These are the people that God selected to tell everyone about the coming of this Jesus. God does not proclaim the coming of Jesus to the powerful or to the elite, does he? He doesn't go to the seats of power and say, Quick, send out a Evangelion, right? Send out a message that says uh, that the king has been born in Bethlehem. This is not what he does. He sends some messengers to some shepherds in the field, and he says, go tell everybody. Go tell everybody. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is happening here, right? Why is Jesus uh, being heralded by these shepherds, and what is God attempting to communicate to us via this story? What exactly is happening here, and why is this the way that Jesus is being welcomed into the world? Why through shepherds is the announcement going out rather than uh, by royal edict or decree, right? This, This story, I think, tells us a little bit about who the person of Jesus is, about the character of God, and it gives us some insight, I believe, into... Into how the power, the rule of the reign of Jesus is uh, articulated as something that is different from the rule, reign, power, and authority of what we would consider earthly kings, or at least all the kings and rulers at that time. And I think that that's probably what the, the one of the main points of this uh, of this story is that Jesus' kingship is not ultimately going to look like. Everyone wants it to look. The Jesus' kingship is not going to look like everybody wants it to be. This is not how Jesus' kingship is going to function. Now, I don't necessarily blame people in the narrative for not understanding this, right? Because they were kind of at a lack right? They were kind of at a deficit. But we see over and over and over again in this story that people misunderstand what the coming of Jesus means, the significance, or the way in which he functions as the king of the world. As you continue to read the Gospels, you see the disciples misunderstanding this all of the time, right? You see see, uh, James and John, who were two of his disciples, their mom comes to Jesus, and they sit, and he said, and she says to Jesus, when you Are in your kingdom, and what she means by that is when you are literally on an earthly throne and you have a bunch of power, right? When that happens, put my sons at your right and your left hand, make them treasurer and vice president or something, right? When Jesus says, "You don't know what you're asking," right? Uh, Another time when uh, the 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 disciples get this mixed up is when um, Jesus is being taken into custody right? He's being taken into custody by the religious leaders of the day. And Peter gets up a little bit of courage and pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of, uh, of the servant of the chief priest. And Jesus gets up and he says, this isn't what my kingdom's all about. This, this isn't how we function. And he touches his ear and he heals it and they put their swords away, right? And he says those famous lines, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword, right? Jesus is articulating that his his kingdom is different. It functions in a different way. It's no less physical, but it is different. And finally, and probably most definitively, when Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate is attempting to determine if Jesus is a political insurrectionist, if he is coming to take power and overthrow the Roman government. This is why Pilate wants to talk to Jesus. And he says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" And Jesus Functionally, in uh, in Jesus says something that I think is quite interesting. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over uh, to Luke. Or I didn't put the. Can we throw that up? I don't have to. I don't have the quote in my notes. Hey, this happens. You don't have that passage either. Oh well, it's in a gospel. Uh, <laughs> it's either Luke or Matthew, guys. We'll edit this out. Uh, beginning in Luke chapter thirty-three uh, or chapter. 24, I think uh, beginning in verse 33, it says this, and then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that, and then Jesus asks, is that your own idea or did other, uh, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it, what is it uh, you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, something that he had just stopped, right? But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate says. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate is pursuing Jesus here because he wants to figure out, is he a threat, right? Is he a problem for Rome? And if he is a problem for Rome, he's going to have him killed, right? That's that's what his plan is. And Jesus says these famous words, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, I think we misunderstand what Jesus was saying here. Very often, because when we read this, we believe that it means that Jesus is not concerned with material things, or that he's not concerned with the world very often. What we think Jesus is saying here is, I only care about individual souls. I don't care about the functioning of the world. And this is not true. Jesus cares desperately about the here and now and about the world. Otherwise, why would he go around healing people's bodies, right? Why would, he go around, uh, why would he go around investing deeply in this world? Jesus cares very deeply for this world, but what he means when he says my kingdom is not of this world is my kingdom does not function the way that other kingdoms of this world function. Does this make sense? He's not saying it's not from this place or it has nothing to do with physical or earthly things. He's saying it functions differently, right? My kingdom operates differently than the kingdoms of this world. And he, my kingdom is established in a different way. Jesus says in verse thirty-seven, essentially to Pilate, "Yes, I am a king, but my kingdom functions differently. It's not going to. I'm not going to overthrow Rome. That's not what I've come to do. But I, I have come to establish the kingdom, the kingdom of God, on this earth, in this place." And that rule and that reign is going to come to bear. But it's going to come to bear in a way that doesn't look like uh, a normal uh, situation. Now, I think part of the way that this is best illustrated, this idea that the kingdom of God is a real, it's an earthly kingdom, but it's established in a different way, is, uh, is best illustrated from church history. So early in the history of the church, uh, the church began to establish these homes for the poor and for the infirm because there was no such thing as health care. There was really no such thing as even... There was no such thing as hospitals. There was no such thing as basic basic doctoring, actually, at this time. And so the church went about uh, setting up these things that they called xenodosias. Xenodosias is a Greek word. Um, And these were homes for the sick, for the infirm, for the poor. These were places where anyone, regardless of whether they were a Christian or not, could come into these places and be cared for. It's actually out of these Xenodosia you know, that eventually the modern day hospital springs, right? These turn into what we know today as, as a hospital. Before these existed, there was no such thing as a hospital. And so, Christ, uh, so people all throughout the Roman world knew that if they were sick, if, they were, if someone in their family died and they had no financial resources, if they, uh, if they had fallen on hard times, that they could go to this place and they could be cared for, both physically, emotionally, and financially. And these, were, these began to spring up all over the Roman world all over the Roman world, and people began to be cared for, and people came into the church because of these things, right? People found love and support and care and, uh, and medical, medical care, and they, 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 they found this in the church. They found this from Christians when they couldn't find it in any other place, and they uh, found their way into the church. This was so prominent that uh, one emperor, uh, Julian, uh, was quoted as saying this, it, it, is, is it, it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, which they, Galileans were servants of the Galilean, who is Jesus, so it's a shorthand, or not a shorthand way, but it's a way of saying Christian. Uh, it is disrespectful that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. This is what the emperor of Rome, Julian, said about the, the way that Christians provided care, not just to their own people, but to everyone. Do you see the way that the kingdom of God was established in Rome was not via uh, the sword. It was not via going and taking power and making things happen the way that uh, Christians wanted them to happen. The way that the kingdom of God was established and the way that the, that the kingdom of God swept over the known world at this time was through service, was through humble service, was through the laying down of one's life for another person. This is what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He meant that uh, his kingdom functioned in a different way. It was not about power over. It was not authority to dominate. It was rather about service. And that is one of the keys to understanding why Jesus announces his reign and his rule not to the power elites, not to the authority of his world, but rather to some lowly shepherds. Because if the good news of Jesus is not good news to the poor, then it's not good news. If the good news of Jesus is not good news to the poor and to the oppressed, then it's not good news. The message of Jesus and his coming must always be seen through the lens of the poor and of the broken. It must always, its effectiveness must always be gauged by if it aids those who are the lowliest in our society, who are in the most need. That is always how the gospel of Jesus must be gauged. If the the gospel of Jesus has been trumped by those who only have power and authority, if, it, if it's been dominated and it's used to control people or manipulate people, then it's not the gospel of Jesus. But if, but if it comes humbly and it comes to serve and it's a pronouncement of peace and deliverance to those who most need it, then it is the gospel of Jesus. And the announcement of Jesus' coming to the shepherds makes this clear, doesn't it? The shepherds were, they were the poor and the lowly. They were the despised people of the world. And yet, it is to them that the message of Jesus first comes. And they, in turn, become the messengers of this good news, don't they? They, they turn around and they become the messengers of this good news. That in the words of the angel, today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. And they carry this message to everyone, the text says, to everyone who will listen because it is indeed good news and it must be communicated. It must be communicated because the good news of Jesus is first and foremost good news to the poor, to the hurting, and to the marginalized. The good news of Jesus does not travel from the top down. It travels from the bottom up. This is how Jesus's kingdom functions. And eventually, it does travel all the way around the world. It does. It travels all the way to us in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which I don't know if you've ever gone to Israel, but it's a long way. Don't try to ride your bike. You'll get wet. Uh, And so this Christmas, this Christmas season, as a church, we want to embody this message. We want to live it out. Not just, uh, not just sentimentally, but practically. Because if the, if the message of Jesus, if the good news of Jesus is a good news to the poor, then during the Christmas season, the way in which we celebrate the coming of this Jesus, whose message is good news to the poor, we, we better be cognizant of the fact that as we, celebrate, as we celebrate the coming of this God, that the way we celebrate it should also be good news to the poor, right? It should be. It should be it should be good it should be good news to those who need to hear some good news, shouldn't it? And so this is why uh, this year uh, we have targeted this Sunday as Giving Sunday as Project Rescue Sunday, and why we've why we've designated Project Rescue as the organization that we want to give some of our resources to, because these are some women and some young girls and some young boys who are in desperate need of some good news, right? They are. So, uh, if you were with us last week, we showed a little video, and we're gonna show that video again. Um, If there are any children in the room, uh, I might advise them, this video deals with some adult content, and so uh, you might wanna either step out or put on some headphones. If you're somebody who might be sensitive to some of these uh, issues, I would encourage you also to maybe step out or look at your phone. Uh, So we'll watch this video. We'll play it in just a minute and then uh, in just one second. And then after that video, I'll come back up. All right? All right.
1: Sexual exploitation has been with us for thousands of years. Globalization has only escalated this horrendous evil.
2: We are now at a point in the world where every single nation is involved in some way with sex trafficking of women and children.
0: The Spanish police say that 90% of the people who are arriving on boats as refugees from Africa are
2: actually victims of human trafficking. 500,000 is an estimated um, number of women that come in annually um, are trafficked into Europe and
0: forced into prostitution.
1: Every tourist spot in the world has a dark side people don't see. So our world is the dark places where most people have given up. Our goal is through Jesus to reach out to the whole system where you transform people's lives and give them hope and bring about a revolution of justice. people say to us Project Rescue do raids, we say no, we do relationships. A raid you only do one time, but a relationship is that you go into the brothels, you establish Bible studies, you go in and establish prayer and show them there's a way
2: out. If we just take a woman physically out of the brothel to a safe place, that's only the beginning of rescue. Until she is free body, mind, and spirit to make new choices, to become the woman of God she was created to be, the jobs only have done.
1: Life-changing aftercare is the most intense part of the healing process. It requires medical, physical, and emotional support, as well as education and vocational training. But these are enough. Prostituted women and children need spiritual freedom and a new identity that can only come through Jesus Christ.
2: You don't go to the core issue. And if Christ doesn't come in and heal that woman's soul, then she's going to go back. When we
0: first interview a woman that's in that situation, she doesn't have any self-worth. She can't even lift up her head and look at you in the eyes. I felt a sense of urgency that I need to move there like my, my daughters. I'm not going to wait for anybody else to decide on having a meeting.
2: In the scripture it says, if any woman, man, child be in Christ, they're in creation. So that promise isn't just about, okay, we're gonna get you into a better place Over time as she experiences God's truth about herself. You're not a prostitute. No, you're a daughter of God.
1: Project Rescue, Hope. Stop.
0: All right, all right. Uh, I said last week, and I know this to be true, that that seems like uh, it's not the most uh, fu- uh, warm, fuzzy Christmas uh, video in the history of the world, but it happens to be the heart of what it means to, uh, of Christmas, that in the coming of Jesus, a light has dawned, and that light is for deliverance in life for those who are in darkness. That's what Christmas is, and that's what we've uh, gathered here to do today. So, um, in just a few moments, uh, our ushers are going to pass around our offering uh, bags, and uh, you can feel free to give uh, to this Project Rescue offering. But, but before we do that, let's pray together, uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll give. Father, we love you, and we ask that as uh, we are here today, God, that you would put on our hearts what you would have us to do for Project Rescue. Uh, that, you would, uh, that you would help us today to partner with those um, who are in the darkest situations possible, God. And would our gifts uh, to them today be a light, the light of Jesus that would come to this place, to this world? Um, we know it's just resource, we know it's just money, God, but um, we ask that uh, through your servants, through your people, through Project Rescue, through this organization, that it would be that they would be the, uh, actively bringing the light and life of Jesus into the darkest corners of our world this Christmas season. Would you help us, God, uh, to be uh, light in our own world, in our own dark corners, in our in, the, in those places where we find ourselves that might not be uh, flush with light? Would you help us also to be light this week and this month? Jesus, we love you, and we pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Well, thank you, everyone who gave, and everyone who is here today. I forgot. Here's something I forgot. I forgot to tell you all that my cousin is here with us. This is my cousin Nathan. This is uh, Nathan's from Des Moines. You can clap for him. Nathan's Nathan's from Des Moines uh, and uh, was, a, was had a free Sunday. He's led worship at a. I don't know, like 150 churches over time. Uh, uh, But he had a free Sunday, so he was able to come up and bring some friends, uh, and we're happy to have him today. Uh, And any other day he wants to come, just for the record, Nate. Uh, All right, great, great, great. All right, Uh, thank you all. Let's pray one more time. Father, uh, we love you, and we ask that as uh, we gather here today, uh, that your love and your your message and your truth would rest heavily upon us, that would carry us out into this next week of Christmas with joy and with hope, but also uh, with light and with life and with a message to tell. We love you, Jesus. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. We'll see you next Sunday, Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks.